I'm Wilson Lai. I'm Benjamin Yap. I'm Eli Sands. You're listening to Deep Cut. Three, two, one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if we can use it. I don't think we should use it <laughs> for copyright reasons. Oh, oh, because we're so close to the original that no. it'll tag as a, as, a, yeah. as a copyright. Copyright ID. Hey, if we can cover Inside Lewin Davis, we can. Uh, yeah, we can. We use can use yodeling. that. We can yodel a little bit. Uh, okay, on Deep Cut, we compare a director's most popular film with a personal favorite chosen by one of us. That was such a quick turn. That was, oh. I'm just really impressed. That was just like in the zone. <laughs> we also discussed the director's life and career to bring in context that helps us view their movies as they may want us to. Welcome everyone to our final Coen Brothers episode. Or is it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We might surprise yeah, we, ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> and knows? you as well. Yeah. <laughs> this week, we're going to close out our series on the Coens by going back in time to their second feature. Raising Arizona. So this is my deep cut pick. It's a huge nostalgia pick for me because the Coens were one of the first directors I ever did a deep dive into. And Raising Arizona was the one I remember the most fondness for. I also had a huge crush on Holly Hunter in this movie. So there's also <laughs> that. Mm-hmm. So I think I just want to start off and ask what y'all think of this movie? I really enjoyed it this is this is the second time i've seen this movie and i'm realizing that i don't think i was paying that much attention the first time i was watching it (laughs) probably because i had a really long day and i don't know my mind was somewhere else and i was not you guys understand like you really need to like give yourself into the movie Mm. in order for a movie to really work for you Mm. and i think Mm-hmm. Raising Arizona is a really prime example of it because it has so many different tones to it. It's sort of like how if the Coen brothers just took their like their most funny movie and then their like most like violent gruesome movie and then like put them together a little bit and or like and and their most like emotional movie as well and put them together. I think the tone switches this time around were f- phenomenal and mm. the ability to have still such a coherent story and like emotional through line through the movie is really great. I think that Holly Hunter holds the emotional core mm. of the movie totally. and it's still so strong, like come ridiculous, like fight scene, come slapstick stuff, come all the jokes at the core of the movie, there's still Holly Hunter and her character's desire to to have a baby and the confl- the conflict that she has. And yeah, I, I just really liked it this time around. In the grand scheme of things, I don't think it's still high on the Coen brothers list, but mm. I really appreciated the movie this time around. Eli? Similarly to Wilson, my opinion of Raising Arizona went up on my second viewing. I think the first time I might have seen it on a plane 
Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and when does a movie ever benefit from being watched on a plane? Actually, no, I, I take can that say back. a few times. There, yeah, there, there are movies that really work on planes. Yeah, I've, the first Korean film I watched, like by Alex Sun, I was on a plane. <laughs> and it stuck with me. <laughs> Everybody knows by Oscar Farhadi I saw on a plane and oh. I, I enjoyed that. Oh, yeah. um, I've, I'm forgetting a good plane movie that I've seen, yeah. but I know, I know it's true that I've seen a good movie in the plane before. So this time around, I think I enjoyed the vibe a little bit more. I remembered it as being almost like a live action cartoon in places and that made mm. it feel weightless to me on the first view. But this time around... I definitely felt what Wilson's saying about Holly Hunter really occupying the center of the movie. And I would even tweak that a little bit and say that it's the relationship between Nicolas Cage's H.I. McDonough and Holly Hunter's Ed Mm -hmm. that is the grounding factor. Raising Arizona is definitely occupied by the kind of side characters that we've discussed in our prior Cohen episodes, where they're heightened and a little bit exaggerated and Mm. almost one note, but because they have so much specificity, it doesn't feel like it's one note. But I definitely stand by the sort of idea that it's verging on live action cartoon in places, not in a bad way. I think you definitely hit the nail on the head. I think they were actually going for live action cartoon. And I was reading some information about a film and people were talking about the Sam Raimi influence of it. Mm. yes and evil dead 2 comes out the same year as this which i've not seen is apparently also very much close to a live action cartoon so they were kind of operating on the same wavelength and if we didn't know sam raimi was very integral to like the cohen start as filmmakers he was involved with the i think i'm not sure exactly but i know he was somehow involved with helping to get blood simple funded and they were also using sam raimi's kind of style of filmmaking as a way to sell Blood Simple to the hundreds of investors like family dentists that they had for <laughs> Blood Simple. It makes a lot of sense. Like this kind of has a very Looney Tunes vibe. You even have Woody Woodpecker, who's a tattoo that appears twice, yeah. which kind of gives you a hint as to what they were doing. For me, this film occupies such a huge part of the nostalgia in my brain somehow, which I cannot explain because this was one of the first few films I saw and loved like unapologetically as a young film nerd, I guess. <laughs> I don't know mm. when I first saw this. It was maybe up to 10 years ago, maybe even earlier. And I think the thing that both of you are talking about, which is the emotional core of this, is so strong that despite the zany action set pieces and the kind of over-the-top humor, mm-hmm. the exaggerated characters... Like, you have this strong emotional core that really gets you. And I always think about the scene in the car near the end of the movie when Ed is breaking up with him. Mm-hmm. And despite all the craziness, like, thinking, just thinking about that scene right now is, like, almost bringing a tear to my eye. And it shows you how powerful that that relationship between the two characters are. Mm-hmm. Despite how heightened their characters are, that you can create authentic emotion in a exaggerated film world. And I think that's the beauty of this film. And I think watching it again, my love for it has waned a little bit, Mm. for sure. Which is why I'm glad I picked it, actually. That's weird because our love has grown, like Eli and my love for this film has grown. 
because now I think like having seen so many more films, there's more to kind of compare it with and to pit it against. And that's not to say that it's a bad movie by any stretch, but it kind of puts things in perspective. And I still love it for how it makes me feel, how it makes me feel young again, almost. Mm. <laughs> how it makes me feel young to see Nicolas Cage and Holly Hunter young. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of crazy. It's one of their first few roles. There's another scene that just popped into my head because you were talking about that really emotionally effective scene in the car when they first steal Nathan Jr. and they have him in their living room in the trailer. And it's just like a series of shots of H.I., Ed, Nathan Jr., H.I., Ed, Nathan Jr. It's just cutting between the three of them. And then H.I., in a swell of emotion, says, oh, are you kidding me? We got ourselves a family here. And <laughs> yeah. I think that's, that's a good, like, heart core moment, too. Mm. It really it's those is. things that kind of add ballast to the balloon. Mm. Okay, before we get too deep into everything, I have, like, a few small notes about this. There isn't that much information about Raising Arizona. So I'm just going to jump through some context and then we can talk even more about this film. So this is their second movie. It came out in 1980... I don't know. Seven. Seven, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that. My research paid off. Yeah, Starting a letterbox page right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to read about this and apparently... Raising Arizona was the Coen's way of selling out <laughs> because they wanted to make a mass market audience friendly comedy so that they wouldn't end up being confined to only making hard boiled noirs like Blood Simple. So they're like, huh, we're going to make the opposite of Blood Simple. Okay. And it's not necessarily the opposite, but they were really just trying to bust out of just doing Blood Simple. And even right. Blood Simple wasn't what they pitched, which is a horror. It was more of a thriller. Mm -hmm. And you see that with the Coens. They're constantly trying new genres. Right. Trying to hand different things. And from their second film, they were already in that, like thinking that way. Trying to bust out of what they're comfortable in. Yeah. And so like the key, kind of one of the key features of the film is it's kind of southern twang to all the dialogue and stuff, which is very much influenced by Willem Faulkner, John Steinbeck. And there's a sudden feel to the dialogue and the character names. And I was just reading about this and apparently Roger Ebert hated it. Huh? For that reason? Because he really hated that affect of oh. like characters just spewing stuff in this way <laughs> that's like overwritten. Yeah. And I think he really disliked that kind of lack of reality to it, right? Hmm. Yeah. I have a quick question. Is there a Coen Brothers movie that doesn't have a very strong accent in it? <laughs> I don't know. Hmm. Oh. Depends. <laughs> I am not thinking of one. It depends on what they you call all... a strong accent. Well, I feel like they all do, right? <laughs> I guess. In their own ways. Because they kind of use the accent as like a way to create another world. Mm. Uh, like a pocket of Americana somewhere. Yeah. And so they lean into the accents to do that. Yeah, it helps create world. It helps create tone. An accent can be the difference between drama and comedy for them. Right. And also it helps define character specificity. Similarly to some of the visual methods of establishing character that we've discussed. Yeah. Other notes, it was a very polarizing movie when it came out. I think kind of like how Ebert didn't really like how it was like this zany thing. I think people either really love how crazy and wild it is as a cartoon or people are just like, this is childish and stupid or something. 
I think you kind of have two different kinds of ways of looking at the movie. You either lean into its wild stuff or you don't. <laughs> and then hmm. that kind of dictates how you're going to enjoy it, I think. Mm-hmm. I found this really interesting note, which is that when they were filming in Arizona, so this film is set in Tempe, Arizona, some local newspaper managed to find a copy of the shooting script <laughs> and they hated it because they thought it portrayed Arizonans in, in a particularly bad way or in a um, in an unfriendly way, I guess, and said mm-hmm. that it portrayed them as, quote, hicks with bad tastes in clothes. <laughs> <laughs> the public outcry was so bad that Joel Cohen had to, like, make a public statement. That's hilarious. To tell them that it took place in, quote, the Arizona of the mind. <laughs> what? That's an even that makes funnier no sense. comment that he gave. <laughs> Which, like, I don't know if... That helps, but okay. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. I don't know how, like, Arizonans now think of the movie. <laughs> the Arizona of the mind. I'm going to get that tattooed on my back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could say that, you know, Fargo is the Minnesota of the mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Burn after reading is the DC of the mind. Yeah, it, it just is. So, yeah, that's all the kind of, like, dumb facts i have (laughs) so we can talk about this and the first thing i want to talk about which kind of launches from what we were talking about which is the emotional core of this is i want to talk about the first scene or montage of scenes Mm. before the opening Mm. title i mean all i want to say now is that it's one of my favorite pre-title introductions ever it's so efficient establishes high and its relationship so well immediately forms this investment in them as a couple yeah. creates the world the zany world immediately yeah it's really funny and it's only 11 minutes wow it's incredible what, do y'all think? <laughs> what really stuck out to me was the opening and the the, the epilogue as mm. well where high is narrating and mm. what i found really interesting and really effective is sort of the contrast between how high is so eloquent and like poetic when he's in his narrative voice mm-hmm. side uh, compared to how he presents on screen is sort of like bumbling, <laughs> bumbling and idiot. dumb and, <laughs> but i think that is so beautiful in a mm-hmm. way in that like the only way that he can like really truly communicate is through narration and it's with us the viewer mm-hmm. so i think it is he he he's sort of like leading you in and in a very like comforting way into this world and then also like closing it out in a very beautiful way and mm. that makes the the opening and the closing in the movie is like one of my favorites out of, out of like all of the coens that we've seen it implies an inner life for the other characters who in some ways are you know sketched a little bit caricaturishly but if high has that rich of an inner life then mm. why not the other characters? It's kind of a nice, small, empathetic touch. And I think you also see that, like how like his two buddies who escape from prison, played by John Goodman and the other guy whose name I forgot, William Forsyth, they also fall in love with Nathan Jr. Mm-hmm. And that also kind of gives you a sense of like, you know, they also want to form a family. There's that feeling that, not that family, like having a kid is what brings people together, but, <laughs> but that these bad people, quote-unquote, will find that kind of emotional connection with each other. Mm -hmm. Whether it's between two brothers or, like, a couple 
or between a cop and a criminal, you know, like that's that kind of hopeful message to a lot of it. The opening scene has some of my favorite shots ever, <laughs> like oh, wow. the wide shot of the wedding scene. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> Where you see that one half is. Hai's family, I guess, where they're all yes. wearing Hawaiian shirts and one side is Edwina's <laughs> colleagues, I guess, from, from the police station all wearing their uniforms. And so, <laughs> like, I remember that shot from when I first saw it and, like, I've never forgotten it. <laughs> it's, like, three seconds and you see it and it's seared in your memory. You yeah. know, it's just very smart. It's funny because this scene reminds me of and is probably on par with the scene from Up. Which has the same... Yes! I was thinking about that too! It has the same conclusion. Wait, the conclusion is that she dies. It's not the same conclusion. No, okay, not the same conclusion. Like, there's, a mid- <laughs> there's a conclusion in the middle. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Sorry, Sorry. spoilers for Up. <laughs> spoilers for Up. But yeah, in the middle of that montage when like you find out she can't have kids either. It's yes. like the exact same thing here. <laughs> Ed doesn't die in this (laughs) yeah and I think it's it's got that same I mean the up one is specifically trying to be more sentimental yes but this one gets to have its cake and eat it too it's both sentimental and also really funny Mm -hmm. yeah you have such immortal lines as the one about (laughs) I can't remember the entire line but something something that my seat could not find purchase talking about <laughs> how the fact that she cannot bear children which is just a ridiculous line <laughs> to write about something quite sad and tragic yeah. <laughs> it also manages to establish a running bit that again is funny says something about the world brings out some specificity and some side characters there are multiple people who say to hi well okay then <laughs> and i think that sort of also sums up a sort of attitude about the mm-hmm. movie there's a sort of like well okay then i've been thinking a lot about how all the cohen films all speak to each other and then like obviously okay then is also something that reverberates okay when you think then. about fargo okay. right oh yeah yeah oh yeah oh yeah uh, <laughs> and the opening scene has that really funny gag which only from like rewatching it a few times as long as you miss it when ed's in the police station and somebody off screen keeps telling her to not forget the thing so don't forget the profile don't forget a fingerprint. So each time Hai goes back, he reminds her that. And then when she's in her wedding dress, he says, don't forget a bouquet, Ed. <laughs> oh. It's such a quick gag. There's so many gags within this 11-minute span that it's like you kind of miss some stuff because it's flying so fast. But it creates a sense of time and the world that they live in. And like, honestly, I think Hai's outburst when he talks to Ed when Ed gets broken up with and she's crying while taking a photo. Mm-hmm. is maybe one of the most romantic scenes I've ever seen. It is the weirdest thing. Yeah. <laughs> like, it feels so romantic, even though it's weird and, like, not quite of our world. Mm-hmm. But I think Nick Cage brings such an authenticity to the character of High that makes it really work. And I think you, what you were talking about, the narration really helps as well because you feel, like, so invested and aligned with how he thinks. Right. And... I was just reminded of like, I was reading some articles about Raising Arizona and people talking about how the way that he likes to rob convenience stores is almost like an addiction. Mm. Yeah. Because the middle chase sequence where he talks about his urge when he sees the convenience stores that he's <laughs> driving past. Yeah, it's and- like, it's not, a, not even <laughs> on my way home. <laughs> That's yeah. the line. It's so funny. As you were talking about the efficiency and 
running bits in those opening 11 minutes, it also brought to mind that chase sequence. And if we may talk about that next. Let's go for it. Oh, definitely. <laughs> what a scene. What a scene. What an incredible scene. It's so tightly constructed. All the geography is perfectly clear. And there are running gags. Mm-hmm. Like, they keep on piling on obstacles for H.I. The scene comes about after H.I. and Ed have guests and H.I. punches the guest. <laughs> so they're at a low point. They drive past a convenience store. H.I. says he's going to get diapers. And then he goes in and he robs the store. And it sets off just a bonkers chase sequence. And the way that the running gags come about is that the Coens keep on piling on obstacles for H.I. The convenience store clerk has a gun. <laughs> Ed drives away angrily. The cops arrive. Dogs start chasing him. He has to run through houses and grocery stores. He's holding the diapers the whole time. Yeah. For most of it at the start as well. And then drops them. And then, and then drops, drops them. <laughs> and then afterwards picks them up at the end of the whole chase. <laughs> it's the button of the whole scene. It's yeah. just, yeah. it's so smart the way the things pop up have middle beats that sort of heighten the bit and then the ending beat for everything that sort of ties everything up so tidily. I love that ending bit because I was watching it with somebody who had not seen it before and they commented like, oh no, they didn't even get the diapers. And then when High gets picked up by Ed, as they're talking, he's just saying stuff like, take a left, take a yeah. right. And you're just like, you're not even registering because it seems so banal and like you're not sure why he's bringing her but it doesn't matter because it just seems normal and then you realize only at the end or maybe you don't even realize that he is telling her where to go to go pick up the diapers which <laughs> they stack so many things on each other within the scene right that yeah. within the conversation they're essentially stacking a different conversation on top of it yeah and it's so fluid it, it's like one of those all-time crazy comedy slash action set pieces in a sense mm-hmm. absolutely I mean, I also love the use of really wide-angle lenses, especially with the cop that runs into that room. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then all the dogs come out. Like, honestly, one of the zaniest and most, like, over-the-top that the Coens have ever kind of pushed their cinematography. Mm-hmm, and definitely. the cinematographer here is Barry Sonnenfeld, who is now oh. a director of his own. Yeah. Oh. And he shot also Blood Simple and also Miller's Crossing. He also did when Harry met Sally, and he's a director now who is actually probably most well-known for Men in Black, yeah. which I didn't realize. <laughs> and Wild That's Wild West. awesome. Men in Black, one of the great New York movies. Yeah. As we're talking about this scene's use of wide-angle lens, we should also talk about its camera movement, because here I think we can draw a direct line from the Coen's work on Sam Raimi's sets and their friendship with Sam Raimi into the stylistic language of Raising Arizona. So there's a technique that Raimi pioneered on Evil Dead 1, which is that he would nail the camera to a board kind of loosely so that it would shake around a camera operator on either side of this two by four that's holding the camera and they would both run. So it's like (laughs) a shaky floating, almost like a dolly in, but it's two people running the camera in. You see it in... Evil Dead, on these shots that sort of very quickly run in on the shack. You see it in Blood Simple, running in on Francis McDormand's house. You see it here in this chase sequence. 
You also right. see it in the scene where Mrs. Arizona is screaming when she finds out oh, that yeah. Nathan Jr. is gone. Yes. Sorry, I'm just making a note of this <laughs> so I can maybe use so it. So you can buy a bunch of two-by-fours. Yeah. <laughs> that scene where she's screaming, they shot that backwards. Oh. That makes sense. They also do when there's that scene where the car drives straight up to Nathan Jr. Yes, that's yeah. what I was thinking. Because I was like, they, they can't have gone that close to the baby. I was like, how did they do that? Smart. That's a very strong, like, um, scrappy energy to this film. Yeah, yes. and there's also a lot of, like, speed ramping, but to go in faster motion than people usually use to go in slow-mo. And I, I'm always such a big fan of people who use fast motion in films because no one uses it because everyone thinks it like feels like it's so gimmicky, but sometimes it really works. And that includes this film and 20th Century Woman. <laughs> oh, there's so many just creative and sort of high rolling choices here. Of course, in the cinematography, as we're discussing, also in the editing, mm. something that is coming to mind now is when Leonard Smalls is visiting Nathan, Arizona in his office. And he reaches over and grabs a fly that was in front of Nathan's face. But they don't cut on the action. They sort of show Leonard Smalls lunging forward, pinching the air. And then they cut. After he's done moving, they cut mm -hmm. on the static into him holding the fly. It's just such a rhythmic and creative and unusual choice. It's a punctuation mark that helps set tone and really create character. It builds up Leonard Smalls, too. Talking about Leonard Smalls, what do y'all think of this character? Who can win in a fight? Shigur or Leonard Smalls? <laughs> Shigur. Yeah. <laughs> My yeah. money's on Shigur. <laughs> I mean, if, if High can beat Leonard Smalls. <laughs> think about it. <laughs> Fun fact, apparently, Mad Max was an influence on the Coens. Uh, totally which makes, makes a lot, lot of sense. sense. <laughs> To me, Leonard Smalls is maybe the weak point of the movie. Earlier, we were talking about how every character, even though they have buffoonish or cartoonish elements, they have heart and are able to become enamored by Nathan Jr. Leonard Smalls is the only character who does not and mm. views the baby cynically. He at times feels like a bit of a narrative convenience to sort yeah. of be the big baddie. And that feels written away by having him appear in H.I.'s dreams. Mm -hmm. But I both see the benefit of having one character who does not have that kind of heart. It also feels like it steps away a bit from the idea that everyone has a heart and an inner life. Yeah. I think it sort of shows the Coens early on in their like screenwriting in that they need a force like Leonard Smalls to like sort of propel the, the plot forward and just using him as more of a plot device and also like a I guess also a tonal break from the comedic bits to sort of add some more tension even comically so but uh, yeah I would agree with Eli that yeah I, I like don't know if it's like super necessary territory. Mm. I agree with both of you which is why I kind of brought it up because I think Smalls's character is the thing that is key to why I think the film waned for me on mm -hmm. like coming back to it because it doesn't feel as part of the film's world as the rest of its elements. Its supernatural quality is confusing 
because even though the rest of the world is heightened, it's not supernatural. And then you have this strange force. But I think that was the point of it from their writing standpoint. It's more of a, I don't think it works kind of thing. Right. And it is interesting that it kind of, he's almost a character that is born from High's imagination, right? It is mm. from his dream sequence. Like he willed it into existence. And there's, of course, that really interesting note, which they never really explained, where High sees that Smalls has the same tattoo, tattoo as him. And yeah. it's never explained. It's just kind of this weird detail. For, for a second, I thought it was they were going to lead up to a, like a Martha moment. Call back to our Justice League, <laughs> where I would just reveal his tattoo, and for, that would be the reason that they stop fighting. I've forgotten how that that scene ended, and then I was like, "Oh, are they gonna be like their brothers?" I can't remember. <laughs> Woody Woodpecker, why did you say Woody Woodpecker? <laughs> That's my mother. <laughs> it's such a weird thing that they put in and it lacks the tightness of like the writing it's almost like if i read the script for raising arizona all his lines are in flames mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's yeah. that feeling like if i read it then like all his lines are just burnt <laughs> that's what i imagined in my head which is almost kind of effective when you think about it where like they have created this very out of this world character but i think it definitely takes you out i would say for me personally Goodman and Forsyth's characters lean on the too wild for me to accept side. And that's why Raising Arizona isn't like up there with the other Coen Brothers movies. But Hmm. because I think it was just like too much of the balance is shifted outwards towards the the more bonkers side. Mm. Um, I think it's a tough job to balance everything. Yeah. And it's already a miracle that they were able to do as much so as they could. But I think for me personally, it's just like a little bit out of balance. The screaming kind of like goes too far. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I entirely disagree. No. Or John Goodman screaming. It's so <laughs> funny. Him emerging from a hole in the rain covered in mud. That's good. And just yeah. yelling ah. for like two minutes is pure cinema. <laughs> For me, the screaming in the car when they realized they left they Nathan left the baby, on yeah. top of the car was too much because the scene just went on for way too long after the screaming starts. But for me, at least, I think the characters of highest friends, Gail and Neville. Wait, I just realized the gender swap names, Ed being Ed, Edwina, like a, regular, like a oh, dude's yeah. name. And then when they make the joke about the kid being Ed Jr. and... Oh, right. Goodman's character says, oh, for a boy? (laughs) (laughs) That's short for Edwin. Interesting. Male version of Edwina. Yeah. (laughs) Along with gender swap names, in that opening montage, there was a beat that sat uncomfortably, which was in the prison therapy group. There's a man who's Mm. talking about having menstrual cramps, Mm. and it felt a little bit like a small transphobic joke aside and it didn't really feel comfortable it's sort of the same thing that happens in life of brian where it's there's this whole sequence where a character is talking about identifying as trans and it i know that they're old movies but it Mm. still is disappointing and sits on the enjoyment yeah yeah it sours it a little bit watching the movie thanks for bringing it up definitely agree but anyway i thought the two criminals that escape like, they do land for me, like, on the side of working within this universe. Mm-hmm. And I love what they bring to the story, which is, like, 
essentially what you have is a story about a guy choosing between his family or his old life. Except yeah. his old life is like petty crimes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you may not, maybe robbing a store isn't petty, but, <laughs> but it's just pretty minor. But him robbing convenience stores is pretty small. Mm-hmm. They create a nice conflict. And I felt like if they had leaned more into that rather than having to create the Leonard Smalls character, that might have been enough to create some conflict between Hi and Ed. And right. to have somebody else take the, the kids, right? right? So maybe if it was... This is just me dreaming about it. But like if maybe if it was Hi fighting his old life rather than high fighting unspeakable evil then it's might make more sense it might emotionally be more resonant mm-hmm. but yeah just thinking out loud <laughs> um do you guys hear that do you hear a oh bell? it's skip lefty <laughs> corner <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited! So I feel like I like caught on as soon as you did that. <laughs> Hear that? It's everyone's favorite time. And I do mean everyone. Because everyone loves Skip Lefse. Yes, Skip! <laughs> so because this is early on in Skip Lefse's career and the Cohen's career, there's not a ton of information out there. There isn't really an interview with Skip Lefse like there is for some of the more recent Coen Brothers movie. But I did manage to find a conversation between the Soundworks Collection, which is a really great podcast about sound design and sound editing, and both Skip Levse and Carter Burwell. And there's a brief sequence where they mm. talk about Raising Arizona. And I just wanted to drop a little fact. Wait, before you say this fact, it is sort of insane the amount of research you've been doing into Skip Levesay <laughs> this whole series. And if this is the last time that you drop a Skip Levesay bomb on us, I am oh so grateful to you, Eli. Yes. We could kind of just change the name of the title. Like the episode just is Skip Levesay. <laughs> Burn after reading. Skip Levesay, <laughs> Racing Arizona. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hey, I'm uh, I'm open to uh, talk. I'm open to skipping stones. <laughs> so basically, the the big thing that I learned is that every time there's a shot with a car driving, where you see the car from the exterior and sometimes interior, that was shot MOS mute on sound. It was not recorded with sound, so they um. had to recreate the entire chase sequence sonically in post. <laughs> They did not record <laughs> onset sound for that. That's insane. Probably because it was cheaper or faster. But yeah. in addition, Carter Burwell dropped that he was on set for that sequence when it was being shot. And he said that you can't have a few dogs out in the street without every dog in the neighborhood barking. So it was just a cacophony on set of wow. barking dogs. So every time you see a car, that is created in post. And oh I would not have God. known that. Skip Lovesay, working magic yet again. <laughs> yep. Thanks, Eli. <laughs> thank you, Eli. Thank you for our daily dose of Skip knowledge. Hey, don't thank me. Thanks, thank Skip. Skip. <laughs> oh, we so love good. you, Skip. <laughs> what if Deep Cut just transitioned into just being about sound? <laughs> hey, I would be okay with it. I would not mind, honestly. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot to learn and there's a lot to talk about. Skip cut. I don't know. (laughs) Skip cut. Deep skip. (laughs) But also we should, we should shout out Carter Burwell who did some really iconic Iconic music on the the soundtrack this time around. Which you heard a preview of. (laughs) We tried our best to YOLO. (laughs) 
<laughs> he really is a chameleon. His work here doesn't sound like the same composer as, well, mm. certainly No Country for Old Men, but even Fargo or, you know, certainly Inside Lewin Davis. Is he the only guy that they've worked with? I think so. Mm-hmm. I think so. I think so. Yeah. But I think what it is is that the Coens rely on the music so much to sell whatever the genre they're trying to do every time mm. around. Whereas the like there are through lines through the cinematography that they employ on each film they do. I think with the score, Burwell is as fluid as they are with the genres they're trying to uh, like take on. And but I think that makes him all the more impressive of a of a um songwriter perfect example of what you're saying when the coens are maybe sending up the spy genre in burn after reading one of the things that is absolutely committed to that genre is the music yes mm-hmm. the timpani serious mm-hmm. drums of and the tense strings as clooney's constructing what we learn is the dildo chair <laughs> It's like totally committed and <laughs> yeah. serious where other parts of the movie get to go where they want and be silly. I didn't do any research into this, but y'all know like that theme song, that yodeling, like what's that connection with Arizona? <laughs> I don't really know. <laughs> Honestly, but it works I have so no well. clue. <laughs> <laughs> like where, where does that come from? No idea. Do your own research, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we don't have the knowledge here. <laughs> Can I ask, is Blood Simple like sort of a film that has classic Cohen like over the top characters or is it more like serious it does that? have slightly over the top characters but not by so much like definitely Raising Arizona swings the other way completely yeah I guess the biggest similarity between this and Blood Simple is that Blood Simple also has a force of nature yeah which is this person who is like the hitman and he is kind of over the top he's kind of he wears a cowboy hat He's kind of like a cowboy and it's a bit over the top and he seems very powerful. Mm. Yeah. But it's still pretty rooted in some kind of realism, maybe. He speaks in kind of like an affected way. But Bless Simple is much more quote unquote naturalistic. Right. Compared to this. If you were in 1987 following the careers of young directors and you're like, oh, the Coens, I remember them. I'm going to watch the next one. I can't wait for more Thriller. You'll be very surprised by Raising Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing in common is crime, which crime is in a lot of their films. Yeah. 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 Which hmm, says a lot, actually, when you think about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely does. You talked a little bit about this, um, Wilson, I think, when you were talking about how you love the prologue and the epilogue. Mm-hmm. And I love the ending. Of raising Arizona. And I think that is partially why it is one of my favorite Cohen films because mm. it is such a hopeful ending, which uh, yeah. you don't always get with the Coens. I'd say you rarely get. Yeah, especially last week's movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe if you look into all of them, maybe this is the most hopeful. Yeah. I think the only one I can think of is Old Brother that I've seen that has pretty positive ending. But this one is especially hopeful and like it doesn't tell you that this epilogue that High is dreaming of is happening. Mm-hmm. But you know it's a dreamlike thing, but you know that you want it to happen and that wanting and that desire is so aligned with High yeah. and his narration that you feel that it is happening in your mind. Yeah. Like and it is happening in front of you. And so I really love that. And I love that that's how it bookends the film with his narration and 
yeah, I mean, like, if you really step back and look at it, like, there's no reason to think that this should happen. Yeah. It really creates such a strong, positive mood. I couldn't find any interviews with the Coens about this film because it's so old. But I did find one clip from an interview from Sydney where it was mostly... Australia? Yeah, Sydney, Australia. Uh, <laughs> Directed by Baz Luhrmann? Starring Nicole Kidman? <laughs> no. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, so there's this TV spot where they talk about a film and then there's a very, very short interview with Joe and Ethan Cohen, And essentially what they say is, we wanted to make a film that made people happy. Hmm. And... It does make me happy. There's like a bit of sweetness to that kind of happy ending, which I think because of Raising Arizona is something I really like when I watch films. <laughs> Maybe. That's also the same in that scene in the in the card I talk about. It has that one line when Edwina tells, Hi, if I'm as bad as you, what good are we to each other? You and me is just a fool's paradise. One of my all-time favorite lines, it's so overwritten, but also so sweet and endearing and sad. And oh, yeah. it really, it clinches the emotional component of this film for me. Whenever I think about that scene, I think about, I feel like I'm going to cry. When I think about that line. Yeah. And it's amazing how powerful that emotional connection I have with this film is. And I, I can't explain it. Like very few films have that kind of power over me. Of all the films, is this crazy weird film. Yeah. <laughs> I know that for me, movies can kind of, wedge their way into my chest in a similar way to what you're describing mm -hmm. when they disarm me with humor and then come mm -hmm. in with an emotional turn like very abrupt emotional turns from either like sad to happy or vice versa yeah just like do me in and yeah. i totally see what you're saying then that because you're vulnerable in one way and then they like switch it up and, to, and then you're vulnerable in another way in such a quick instant mm. they're like yeah what happened? You like slice me open in the front and then you slice me open in the back? <laughs> it's like they replaced the comedic punchline with something sad. Yeah. yeah. There's that kind of play there. I think it's not the perfect balance in this film, but like when they hit it, they really hit it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a matter yeah. of really good writing in those scenes. Mm -hmm. And really good acting. Yes. Yeah. Really great acting. Yeah. yeah. Cage and Hunter have fantastic chemistry. Incredible. As total opposites. Yeah. Yeah. How does this work? You know, how does this relationship work? And how do they make you buy it in 10 minutes? I, I don't get it. They have an easiness with each other. They have a rapport. They really do. Or as Brad Pitt says in Burn After Reading, they have a rapport. <laughs> <laughs> I'm liking these callbacks to the previous Cohen episodes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Some running gags within the podcast. <laughs> we, we keep on talking about how the tone shifts work and i keep on like thinking back to all the other cohen films and thinking about how do i know any other filmmakers that are like as versatile whenever they choose to do something different like executing it so well um, i know who you're gonna say no no i was not gonna say anybody oh, i was gonna say johnny <laughs> okay. i was gonna say johnny toe yeah, I, was, I was like the closest thing that comes to it is johnny toe mm. but i think within the realm of like american genres and the coens do it like so incredibly well whereas like toe i feel like constructs his own vision of the genre within his his films the coens the way that they stick to genre conventions and like play it differently in terms of like emotional connection and also in the script writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's sort of unparalleled. I think the difference like between those two is that Toe is creating Hong Kong cinema, whereas 
yeah. the Coens are commenting and playing with old classic Hollywood genres. Right. So mm. they have a larger history of films that they're playing with, whereas it feels like Toe is birthing those films. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like... Yeah, he really is just birthing them out of his ass <laughs> in a good in the best way possible Yeesh. <laughs> just pulling them out from that with their ankles right yeah. Yeah. from the earth yeah yeah hong kong romantic comedy pull it out <laughs> another director who i might throw out there who is able to i think even more invisibly take on different types of movies would be Sidney Lumet. Mm. Mm. I haven't Poss- seen a lot of Lumet. Me, me neither. Mm, possible. Perhaps in the future. I've seen the yeah. highly rated ones, but I haven't seen too many. Well, stay tuned. Oh. Ooh. Okay. Okay. Because we picked four really diverse films from the Coens, yes. they yes. also all happen to have different DPs. Yeah, I I don't know where this conversation is going to go. I'm going to put that out there first. (laughs) Yeah, so we have had um, No Country for Old Men with Roger Deakins, which is their most frequent collaborator when it comes to DPs. And then we've had Inside Lewin Davis with Bruno Dabonel. And we've had Burn After Reading with with Emmanuel Lubeski. Yes. Chivo. 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 And then we know it's Chivo. And then now we have, with Raising Arizona, we have Barry Sonnenfeld. It's probably too much us. Which is your favorite DP based on these four Del films? Del <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm claiming it early. I am I am in Del Bunnell's corner. I think there is nothing that beats the cinematography of Inside <laughs> Lewin Davis in their filmography. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, I really like it. went in early and aggressive. <laughs> I wasn't going to make a decision because it's so hard to like... Like, they're different films. They have different goals. Yes. The DP is pushing towards different ends. Yes, definitely. It's like an apples to oranges kind of thing. Yeah. 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 It's, they're so good at choosing collaborators that fit the project at hand. It's appropriate. And add to it. Sorry, I only say Del Vidal so (laughs) decisively (laughs) because I feel like the cinematography in that movie feels like a, like a warm hug on a winter's Mm. day. And it is. When a look of a film can really like comfort you and like affect you emotionally like that's that's special that's special Mm. here's an interesting note i've been listening to the team deacons podcast which is the podcast which roger deacons and his partner james deacons do together and he was talking about obviously his work that's a interview with joe cohen as well and a lot of people talk about roger deacons and how he prefers wider lenses and how he brings that to the cohen world Right? And a lot of people attribute the choice of, we've been talking about this before, where they shoot slightly wider medium shots so you can see mm-hmm. more of the space. We talk a lot about this. Well, what's interesting is that Roger Deakins says that the reason why he used wider lenses on the first film that he did with them, which was Barton and Fing, was actually because the Coens had worked with Barry Sonnenfeld, who also preferred wider lenses, he gravitated towards them because the directors gravitated towards them. And so Barry mm. Sonnenfeld's use of wide lenses is actually a big influence on Deakins, who kind of took that mm. influence through the Coens, and then that was how he kind of came to his own style. And so that's a pretty interesting connection there. Yeah. yeah. So like if you look at the wide shots in Raising Arizona, that's kind of the seed of right. Deakins in a sense. You know, it's kind yeah. of interesting. 
That's really cool. Yeah. Also because we've been talking about these type of shots for like three yeah. episodes or all four episodes. It's good to know now mm. where where it came from. So if you think about it, Roger Deakins' career exists because of Men in Black. <laughs> in a very, very, very indirect way. <laughs> because very Sonic felt wanted to do Men. No, I don't think so. I don't know what's the first thing he did after after he decided he was gonna be a director, but yeah. I remember this conversation I had with a DP, a local DP from Singapore, and he, he said something really funny to me, which is that he was talking about one car wise, my blueberry nights. And he was saying it looks beautiful, but it wasn't shot by Christopher Doyle. And he said, maybe the DP isn't important. <laughs> maybe the DP is what? Isn't important. Bearing in mind oh. that he's a DP himself. <laughs> and I don't know, like, it's interesting. Not really a discussion, but like an interesting thought to think about like how much do directors control yeah. and influence what the look of the film ends up being, right? It's you can say that for any department head, though, yeah, I would say. Exactly. And I also think it is it, it really depends from filmmaker to filmmaker, right? Because mm. you have filmmakers that are more that want to be more collaborative, and you have directors that have a very singular vision that they just want people to execute. I think about how we think about DPs, right? Mm-hmm. And how people kind of attribute certain attribute certain qualities of image to different DPs. We think about Chivo and how people always characterize him for his use of white lenses because of the work that he does, especially with Malik. Mm-hmm. And then think about how different it is in Burn After Reading. And so yeah. to my mind, I'm thinking about like, sometimes the best DPs are actually the ones who are able to contort themselves and be a chameleon to the project and like try and do something that fits the story more than about applying a certain kind of cinematic style to the film right yeah and so there's that feeling of the dp is trying to become invisible in a sense Mm. right i mean this is how deacons works he doesn't like the camera to distract actually Mm. right yeah so like i've just been thinking about that and don't really have a point to it but yeah i agree with what wilson says that It varies from director to director, it varies from project to project, and it depends on the collaborators at hand. But if you're asking me personally, the best thing about this art form that we love is the collaboration. Yeah. I would like to think that anyone can bring something to the table that helps make a movie great. So the director is maybe the shepherd, and I Mm. think the Coens are so good at this. This is how they work with their actors too. They know sort of where they're headed, and they give their collaborators license to do the walking there. Mm, that's a really great way of putting it. They really let the rest of the team bring the film to wherever mm. it needs to go, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard to say without really being in the room. Yeah, right? exactly. Right. But the fact that they are such well-constructed and considered movies, usually, it feels like a team effort. You can hear... Deacons talk about this on his podcast and like how he likes working with the Coens because mm. they have such a strong collaboration and that Deacons himself is also somebody who really likes to listen to what other people want and like mm. are trying to do. I'd love to see how things work on a Coen set. That would be cool. I also think it's interesting because there are not a lot of directing teams or directing pairs out there and the Coens are probably the most famous of them and just trying to think how the dynamic is different when you have not one, but two people calling the shots. And I would say they would probably be more open to collaborating with other people because the directing itself is already a collaboration between 
two people mm-hmm. or the directing, producing, and writing. Yeah. People always talk about how like the Coens would just finish judges' sentences, which sounds <laughs> crazy. I, yeah. I saw this quote. I forgot which movie it was about where somebody was talking about being on set with them, and then either Ethan or Joel would say to the other, "Is like, hey, Ethan." The thing? No, I know what you're talking about. And then immediately goes talk to the actor about the thing. Oh my <laughs> and God. they don't even they, they don't even confirm the thing. They just know the thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. It sounds kind of crazy. That's wild. It's so then it'll be interesting to see Joel on his own. Oh yeah. <laughs> this yeah. this year. And we'll probably cover it on the podcast. I hope we will we will. Maybe we uh, will. I would do that. Maybe we'll get press passes. Oh, <laughs> maybe, maybe. I don't know what to, but you know, something. <laughs> just give me a link. Yeah. Cohen, give me a lick. <laughs> Whoever A24 publicist <laughs> reaching out to you now via the airwaves. Thinking about this whole like collaboration thing, also thinking about listening to Joe Cohen's interview with, with Deacons, he talks about how scared he was on the set of Blood Simple because hmm. they were very young when they did Blood Simple. How young? Older than us now? Younger hopefully. Than oh. me now. Fuck. <laughs> ah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think if I'm not wrong, one of them is 29, and one of them is like 25, 26, okay. four. Uh, Young, both, that's both I, younger than me. Um, <laughs> and they talked about how like confused they were all the time. They didn't know what was going on. Totally understand that it's your first freaking feature, and they didn't really do that many short films before that. Yeah, um, it's interesting thinking about a podcast being a director focused podcast where we talk about what the director is doing, but it's really such a collaborative medium. So I'm so appreciative <laughs> of Eli's. Frequent skip sections. Don't yes. skip the skip. Don't skip the skip section. <laughs> yeah, because they tell you that filmmaking isn't like one person really doing it. Mm-hmm. Even though all our episodes have a director's name at the front. Like in the end, it's made by like a whole bunch of people. Yeah, let's throw it in the trash. Let's throw the directors <laughs> in the trash. <laughs> Make a film without a director. Hey, just wait till we get to talk about Mark Mangini, another sound editor. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait. Said with so much reticence. <laughs> I thought you could hear it <laughs> in my voice. Oh boy. He's listening. Mark Eli's Mangini. listening. <laughs> Any final Cohen words though before we, we sign out? If if this is our Let's just say it is. For now. Let's just say we're closing closing this out for now. But any final words on your Cohen's binge this time around? I have a thought. As we've been talking about, specifically with Raising Arizona, it's nice that these movies can sort of come and go in your life and they'll take on different resonances. I think that's the benefit of them having such breadth and depth is that there are going to be years of my life where A Serious Man is is more relevant. And there are years of my life where, well, I hope not Miller's Crossing or No Country for Old Men, but <laughs> they have so many different flavors and that allows them to not just be versatile on the screen, but in the lives of their audience. And I think that's part of what makes them such monumental directors and why they mean a lot to me personally. There's a Cohen for every season. Yeah. Put that on a sweater. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> and I also wanted to say that they've done a lot to shape for me a sense of a modern American Jewish sensibility and identity in terms of their wryness and observational skills and what I'd call an empathetic skepticism. And that's been important to me. I think the probably the most reliably interesting 
American directors, although in a very specific tone. I'm trying to think of another filmmaker of their generation that is most similar. And I guess the only other name I can think of is Scorsese. Mm. But really operating in a different sphere altogether. Yeah. Yeah. But he also has a very strong sense of like the kind of worlds he wants to do and is also experimenting a lot with, with style and stuff. I mean, Scorsese's older than them, but he's probably one of the more prolific and still consistent directors of these generations, right? At least in right. America. Yeah, right. That I can think of. Could the Coens do Goodfellas? And could Scorsese do Bird After Reading? <laughs> I don't know. Very interesting question. <laughs> I think by Nate, uh, I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. I, <laughs> I abstain. <laughs> stupidly started a discussion no. that I didn't want to have. <laughs> hey, they both used Nick Cage at one point. <laughs> interesting. Do you have final thoughts, Wilson? Being the, the Cohen noob going into this series, I feel very grateful i keep on saying this but watching these movies most of them for the first time have been such a joy and i really wish that like having you two tell me about your past experiences with the coens like i really wish that the coens were a part of my initial film education that i gave myself but i am still like so happy to be able to experience these films in this day and age. And I'm going to dive deeper into their filmography past this podcast and I think really treat myself to some good movies. I think they're really incredible and always a treat when you watch them, but also versatile and different. And I think that's what makes them, what I can say now, one of my favorite American directors. You're here. It's a very old-timey way to say I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Thank you, everyone, for following our Cohen series. Hope you enjoyed it, and hope you're ready for more very deep dives like this. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Deep Cut. Please rate and review because it helps us to keep making the show. Be sure to subscribe to and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you know when our next episode drops. You can give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram at DeepCutPod. And we've got some exciting new episodes coming up soon. And maybe some more guests. Mm, cheeky cheeky. <laughs> Be sure to join us to talk about movies on our Discord server, to which you'll find a link in the description. And as always, thank you, Justina Yam, for our beautiful artwork. I'm Wilson. I'm Ben. I'm Eli. Take care, and we're looking forward to talking about more movies with you next time. <laughs>